MSW Media. We'd like to thank our new sponsor, Microdose, for supporting The Daily Beans. Offer to learn more about microdosing, THC, just go to microdose.com and use code DAILYBEANS to get free shipping and 30% off your first order. Hello and welcome to the Daily Beans for Wednesday, December 27th, 2023. Today I have a couple of incredible interviews lined up for you. First, we'll be talking with Nira Tandon and then we'll be talking with Victor Shi. I hope you enjoy these interviews as much as I enjoyed conducting them. Hey, everybody. Welcome. I am extremely honored today to be talking to one of my political heroes. She served as a senior advisor to President Biden. She's now a United States Policy Council director at the White House. She worked on the campaigns of Dukakis, Bill Clinton, Obama, Hillary. She helped write the Affordable Care Act. I'm so uh, I just can't. I'm so excited. I'm fangirling right now. Neera Tandon. Hello, Neera. And I'm fangirling back. It's great to be on with you. (laughs) This is so exciting. I can't wait to talk to you because Recently, we on this show, our listeners are aware of a new program being launched by the Biden administration to help people who fund the taxpayers fund the development of pharmaceuticals, but then can't afford to buy them. And I want to start, I want to back up a little bit and talk about like how we've gotten here so far, all of the incredible things that the Biden administration has done to make drugs more affordable, first starting with capping insulin for Medicare recipients at $35 and how that helped create competition. Can you talk a little bit about that? Absolutely. In fact, uh, you know, we've we've all long supported lowering drug prices. I've been working on this. I've been working on healthcare policy. We're going on 25 years. Uh, embarrassing to age myself on that, but it is true. I've been working on it a really long time. And Uh, As you know, advocates, health policy leaders, progressives have been arguing, uh, protesting, supporting, demanding uh, lower healthcare costs and essentially lower prescription drug costs because essentially the system in the United States today is that pharmaceutical companies can charge whatever price they want to. They have a monopoly on their drugs and for, for several years after goes into the market and they basically have the sole patent on the drug so they can choose to set whatever price they'd like. And what's particularly galling about that is not not just that, you know, people need these medications for life and death, like it's a difference between life and death for them. It what's particularly maddening is that we as taxpayers are often funding these medications and the research for those medications, the ability of those medications to 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 come to market, it really depends on the American taxpayer. And yet the pharmaceutical companies price at a level that is just unaffordable for millions upon millions of Americans. So that is, the you know, the president really has one of his top priorities and uh, has been to kind of take on the stranglehold of big pharma and ensure that. Um, we have real competition and that there's real uh, negotiation. And that's how we got to Medicare ha- giving having the ability to negotiate lower drug prices. That's what $35 insulin a- is about. But we also see, you know, when the government acts, private sector it see, does get the message. So 
it is the case that we passed $35 insulin for seniors, but then we saw much of the private sector uh, kind of meet that and offer $35 to most Americans because they recognize that once Medicare sets a price, it's really important for them to follow. Yeah. And and it's that competition bit, right? This is why we've all been saying we need a public option, you know, mm-hmm. b- because if you have a public option at like, for example, I get my health care at the VA. That is the the most government kind of health care you can. It's direct government health care and it's got incredible outcomes. It's one of the most successful large system healthcare care uh, systems in the world. It's got uh, incredible high, high customer service, 86% approval. I mean, we hear the anic- we hear certain anecdotes, but oh, you know, all in all, it's a really incredible system. And that can force private health care providers to lower the costs. And that is what $35 insulin did. Then when you started negotiating drug prices, and me working at the VA, I'm like, why isn't everybody negotiating drug prices? Because the VA has been doing it for a very long time, and they've been doing it effectively. And President Biden and, you know, your administration used that effectively as an example uh-huh. to be like, this is what we can do to create competition. And I love that he's chipping away at the drug prices, be- since we can't do a public option right now. We don't have anywhere near the votes, but we're working toward that. And I think that this... You know, the VA negotiating for drug prices, stepping stone to get negotiated drug prices for everybody. And then that is a stepping stone further down the road for more healthcare competition in the market. Uh, absolutely. And uh, I think if if you just step back, essentially what uh, what the reason why uh, Medicare has not been negotiating drug prices is simply because uh, when they passed prescription drug uh, legislation under President Bush, the second President Bush, they basically created, they had a provision in the law that stopped Medicare from negotiating drug prices. So it's really only because pharma got a sweetheart deal in the drug negotiation legislation or the drug legislation that created a prescription drug benefit. And just think about what that meant. That meant that the federal government was going to, CMS, Medicare, was going to provide prescription drugs to Americans, but Medicare was prohibited from doing anything, using its market power in any way to drive the price down, which meant that basically pharmaceutical companies could go to Medicare and say, this is the price we demand and Medicare would have to pay. And when you think about it, that is just crazy. Americans pay more than any other country for research and investment in prescription drugs. Pharmaceutical companies rely on that federal investment. And then they basically charge seniors, everyday Americans, the federal government who ends up paying for these drugs, really high prices. And it just makes no sense. And as you so uh, you laid out, as we've been arguing this case, we've used the VA, we've used the fact that DOD, these are government agencies that have been able to get, you know, 50%, 60% of the list price for their consumers. And why can't Medicare do the same? It's so basic. And I, and I, what's been interesting about this is we've started the negotiating process. And despite the fact that the big pharma used to spent a hundred billion dollars to ensure uh, that this didn't happen, it did. Congress passed it. The, it was a Democratic Congress. It was a Democratic Senate, a Democratic House that passed this legislation after decades of fight. The president signed it, advocated for it all year long. 
bought Big Pharma and won. And now every single one of those 10 companies is actually negotiating. The reason why they are is because they have been negotiating with VA. They've been negotiating with DOD. They've been negotiating elsewhere. And we will announce the price of the new of these first 10 drugs. And it's only the first 10 drugs in September. Uh, and then there'll be 15 and 20 year after year after that. And this is why this is so important, um, because we will actually be able to use the power of Medicare to advance lower prices for people in ways that will fundamentally reshape how seniors, how much seniors have to pay for their health care, but also create a model for uh, the private sector to use those prices as well. Yeah, another reason uh, to vote for Biden and Harris uh, in 2024 so that we can keep this negotiation going, because I guarantee you, among you know other things like democracy, this kind of thing will just stop if, <laughs> if Trump is allowed. To- I can't talk about the election. And oh, that's right. I am. I am under the hatch act, but uh, yeah, so I, I I'm not anymore. Say amen, sister. I <laughs> no, you can't say that. say that. You can't. But I can. So hoo-hoo, um, I'm no longer bound by the hatch act. Thanks, Trump. So I want to talk a little bit more about the longtime argument against this, um, which is ridiculous, and also this new framework uh, going forward. Mm-hmm. But we need to take a quick break. So everybody stick around. We'll be right back. After these messages, we'll be right back. Yeah. Hey, everyone. Have you heard about microdosing? It's becoming very popular. It's a popular way for people to enhance their health and performance. Imagine the balanced, serene feeling you get after a, a, you know, a run or a workout or a nice hot shower. It's called the zone. It's a state of relaxed focus and energy. Microdosing is a method that helps you tap into that zone more easily and maintain it longer, helping you feel your best more consistently. And consistency is the name of the game. Microdose sent me gummies so I could learn more about getting in the zone. And you can try it too. Go to microdose.com and use code DAILYBEANS to get free shipping and 30% off your first order. These microdose gummies, they're delicious, first of all. They've transformed my approach to everyday stress, pain, and tension. They consistently boost my mood and help me relax, making living in the moment more than just a phrase. My mindfulness is so much more on point. They've also been key to a more restful sleep. Plus, they support my recovery post-workout and have fine-tuned my focus and creativity. To learn more about microdosing THC, go to microdose.com and use code DAILYBEANS to get free shipping and 30% off your first order. That's microdose.com, code DAILYBEANS. microdose.com, code DAILYBEANS for 30% off. Everybody, welcome back. We're talking with Nira Tandon. And uh, before the break, I, I wanted to bring up, you know, you mentioned this provision uh, under Bush, uh, Bush 2, uh, about pharma getting that provision that, that this stuff can't be negotiated. Of course, they got, they lobbied for that provision because they know that once there's a crack in the wall, all the prices are going to start coming down and they, they can't overpay their CEOs or whatever they want to do with all these this massive influx of cash. And the age-old argument, which I just want to debunk right now, is the old, tired argument. Well, then there won't be, the development won't be there. The competition mm-hmm. won't be there. And I can tell you from being inside the VA, partnering with medical universities and research units in, in public universities across the country, that that is not true. The research and development will not stop. In fact, it will probably become more robust. A hundred percent. And also, I would just say, you know, the Congressional Budget Office really looked at this question. They did an analysis of this provision of the Medicare drug negotiation and really pressure tested this question. Would it lead to less innovation? And they found that that it would affect one drug over the next 10 years, 
one drug would be affected by Medicare drug negotiation. And if you think about it, what sense does it make that it would, would stop innovation? A pharmaceutical company is getting dollars from the National Institutes of Health, developing a drug. It sells that drug on the global market. In every other country, that drug is cheaper. Yeah. <laughs> and come to the United States, it's a lot more expensive. They have a lot more profits. They they can you know they bring the price down here uh, for the American consumer who has invested the most to make this drug happen, and they still have a global market for their drug. Uh, and so and this is a negotiation. Uh, like they have to go back and forth on the price. That is what is cap- that that's what capitalism. I love. I have to just say I love the pharmaceutical company lawsuits that we're seeing, which are decrying any. You know that this is like a big government takeover to 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 set a price, and I just think it's it's so amazing because these pharmaceutical CEOs and and leaders in these companies generally are pretty much for capitalism. I thought no, no, they're not. But here, the core principle of capitalism, which is that you can negotiate over the price, uh, the buyer and seller negotiating over the price pretty fundamental to capitalism all of a sudden is, you know, some kind is some kind of affront on every score. And I just, you know, I just think there's a patently absurd argument. And that is why actually uh, even conservative appointed judges are dismissing uh, the arguments of pharmaceutical companies in these cases. We have to be vigilant because pharma is putting a lot of money to bring a lot of lawsuits. But we are uh, cautiously optimistic that the, even this judiciary will see uh, the benefits of and the core principle of, of negotiation, competition uh, that are core to capitalism and really should be something that uh, they celebrate instead of attack. Yeah. And those are political landmines, too. I mean, you know, we're going to be running on, on the fact that uh, the Republicans sued to stop people from getting student debt relief. I mean, it's the same kind of thing. That you OK, you 100%. you want higher drug, but you're fighting. You are spending money for higher drug prices. OK, cool. Um, we'll we'll make ads out of that. Finally, before I let you go. Now we're talking about the competition. We're talking about this new framework. We're talking mm-hmm. about the taxpayers who have paid for these drugs who now cannot afford them because they are priced out. And the president, the administration, has the authority to seize those patents and give them to other drug makers to make generic versions to sell them at lower prices. Where are we on that? What, what kind of time frame are yeah. we looking on that? Is there a, is it going to be like the negotiation where we have 10 drugs at a time or what's it look like? <laughs> This is this is very exciting. So, I mean, it, it's 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 fascinating because it, in some ways it's fucking uh, this has taken so long. But uh, decades ago, uh, Congress passed something called the Buy Bill legislation, Buy Bill legislation, which is uh, for Evan Buy and uh, Senator Dole. And that legislation basically governs innovations that the United States invests in, particularly pharmaceutical innovations. And it said that if the government is investing, if it's create, helping create an innovation, that innovation has to be accessible to the public. Really basic concept. The American payer tax pays for something. The American taxpayer pays for something. They sh- that taxpayer should be able to access that benefit. Until this administration, no one had said that high prices were part of making a drug inaccessible. 
So we put forward this framework that really just had this very simple concept. What did they think is, it was? Like putting it on a hot shelf that was too high? Like what? I mean, it was like basically if you weren't putting it on the market or something like that. And we said, you know, that doesn't make sense. Actually, you know, if I can't afford something, it's inaccessible to me. Pretty basic concept. So that's this framework that we put forward, which governs our ability to uh possibly march in on drugs. So what does that mean? We put forward a patent, a drug company takes that patent, creates an innovation. If that if that's subject to a very high price, then and we, you know, we go to the company and they refuse to lower it, we can take the patent and give it to someone else. That may not, you know, and that will induce uh driving a lower price. So we're just, we propose this framework. Uh, it, it will get uh, finalized in the next several months. Um, and then we have a framework by which we can really drive companies to lower their price because they will face for the first time a threat that they, that the patent will be, will be sent to somebody else. Um, so, you know, I do think all of these actions, $35 prescription, $35 insulin, Medicare being able to ne- negotiate drug prices, just last week, the president announced um, drugs that were subject to the inflation rebate, which is really just uh, ensuring that drugs do not rise, raise their prices. Prescription drug prices don't go up faster than inflation. You know, these are all part and parcel of a strategy to lower drug prices, to break up the power of pharma, to to basically end their, you know, their full monopoly to just dictate whatever price they want. At the end of the day, like anyone else, they should be subject to negotiation so they can't just dictate the price and make seniors, struggling Americans, all of us pay whatever pay whatever they demand. Yeah. And I love the tweet. Uh oh, big pharma's mad at us. Uh, <laughs> I thought that was wonderful. Thank you so much. It's been incredible to talk to you. I really appreciate you spending some time with me today. Uh, it's truly been an honor. And I, I, I look forward to the, to next September when we get those new prices on the negotiated drugs. And I look forward to what this framework is going to look like in a few months. And I hope I can have you back on to talk about it. It was so fun. I love it. I, it's like you can't nerd out all the time. So I'm so excited. I'm so excited to be with you. <laughs> Thank you so much, everybody. Nira Tandon. Hey, everybody. Welcome back. Today, also, I am talking to a very good friend of mine, one of the most powerful Gen Z voices out there. He co-hosts the iGen Politics podcast, which you should subscribe to immediately if you haven't already, with our also good friend, Joel Weinbanks. Please welcome Victor Shi. Hi, Victor. Hi, it's so great to be back. Thank you so much for having me today. I am so excited to talk to you, my friend, because you and I have something in common in that we like to ignore polls <laughs> and watch election results. Um, however, there have been multitudes of polls that show that Joe Biden is extremely favorable to to Gen Z, but those aren't the ones that the mainstream media talks about. They only like to talk about the ones that are super close or where Trump is somehow winning. So talk to me a little bit about that, about your goal to to get the correct messaging out there about Gen Z. 
Yeah. So, I mean, it's very difficult with the sort of media ecosystem that we have right now. And I think one of the instances that really captures what we're talking about is there was a New York Times poll that was released earlier this week that had Biden uh, down with young voters, which in itself is such a laughable thing. I mean, you expect Gen Z, which is more diverse, that voted in 2018, 2020, and 2022 for a for Democrats overwhelmingly to now be somehow against um, Biden and for Trump. Um, it's just really pathetic. And so there were a bunch of stories written by CNN, written by all the outlets about that one poll. Yesterday, there was a poll released by YouGov and The Economist that had uh, Biden leading Trump by more than 25 points. And so there's a sort of, but it only got one um, press press hit by a national outlet by The Hill. And it's sort of this disparity between what you know traditional media covers and the negative polling that they focus so much attention on. And the polls out there that actually show that young people do support um, President Biden at overwhelming rates. And so I, I, it's, it's my goal, and I think it's a lot of people you know, out there, young people who are really making their voices heard to tell the media, like, hey, look, there are polls out there that show young people supporting Joe Biden, his policies uh, more than Donald Trump. And it's not you know, it doesn't it doesn't mean that Joe Biden is any safer, you know, than than last time. We still have a lot of work to do, but there are polls that aren't as negative as some of the headlines and polls out there might show. And it's up to the media now. And I think it's way past time that the media start focusing on some of those more positive um, polling. And and let's talk about where the rubber meets the road, because I know you're out there talking to tons of of Gen Z folks. You bring this up on iGen Politics all the time with Jill. Talk about why. Gen Z supports Biden in such overwhelming numbers. Yeah, so I think at the end of the day, it comes down to values. And when you look at Gen Z and and what we believe in, we actually don't really affiliate with the political party, at least compared to other generations. More of Gen Z affiliates with independence. It's, you know, it's not a very politically focused um, generation. And so when you look at sort of what we care about, it's all values-based. And when you look at the values that President Biden and the legislation that he's accomplished, it aligns right lockstep with um, what Gen Z cares about, whether it's climate change, whether it's student loan forgiveness, whether it's abortion, whether it's uh, gun gun reform. And so all of those issues, President Biden has has delivered on. Sure, it might not be, um, you know, it might not reach Gen Z in the way that the administration wants it to, and the administration has a lot of work to do, I think, on that front. But at least he has the results and the record to prove that he does fight for young people and Gen Z. On the other hand, young people are rejecting the Republican Party at overwhelming numbers. And I think part of the reason why is because it started really with Dobbs. And ever since then, we've seen this sort of slow um, effect throughout states across the country where they're taking away rights of young people. And young people just don't like that. Um, They don't like their abortion rights being taken away. They don't like books being banned. They don't like their, um, you know, educational freedoms coming under attack. But that's exactly what the Republican Party is doing. So I think it's very much a turnoff against the Republican Party, but also looking at this Democratic Party and what President Biden has done and seeing, look, I mean, they have uh, heard us and seen us and delivered for us. Yeah. And it's not just the presidency, right? It's um, let's look at the House. Let's look at Mike Johnson, who is terrified of Gen Z. There's some um, numbers out there that uh, Gen X, about 3% to 5% identifies LGBTQ+. In uh, millennials, it's about 6 to 7%. In Gen Z, it is 25%. And Mike Johnson has brought this up as the thing that scares him the most, right? And his Christo-nationalist type of uh, world that he wants to live in. Um, But that number 
not only is is it going to impact politics and is already impacting politics, and we've seen it impact Gen Z voters in, in 2018, 2020, 2022, and certainly in 2024, we'll see it, but it's going to impact business, yeah. commerce. Uh, it's going to change the way that uh, capitalism functions. And I think that that is one of the most powerful tools that Gen Z has uh, in its tool belt uh, going forward is is uh, LGBTQ plus rights. Talk a little bit about that and how that comes up. But particularly, I, I love the way that, um, you know, you cover these kinds of things on iGen. Yeah, I mean, it, it is it is a very big issue. And you, when you look at, you know, a state like Florida, that is basically, I think, ground zero for a lot of the LGBTQ plus attacks. It's now not a state where it's appealing to young people. You have people in Florida, I have friends in Florida who are leaving Florida for college because it's just become a state where, you know, you can't really talk about the things that you want to talk about or can talk about in any other state because Ron DeSantis and Florida Republicans have cracked down so hard on LGBTQ plus expression. And this is, like you said, happening at the federal level. And they know that it's a threat. And I think one of the most sort of um, dark moments about the moment that we're living in right now is that you have an entire political party that doesn't do anything to even try to reach this younger, more diverse uh, cohort of voters. You have them actually doubling down on anti-democracy efforts. And um, I wrote about this recently for MSNBC, but you see this really, I think, disturbing trend in states like Texas, where there is a bill right now that if passed, would get rid of every single college um, Dropbox and polling location um, it, it, throughout the state. You have Florida now doubling down on gerrymandering and voter suppression. And, and it's, I think, this fear that they have of young people and this fear that young people really pose, I think, the single biggest threat to their ability to stay in power. Because, le- because like you said, more of us identify as LGBTQ+, more of us identify um, with different racial groups, we're more diverse socioeconomically. And so I think it's harder for Republicans to reach us, and they aren't even trying to do it. And I think we all remember that one moment earlier this year when Cleta Mitchell was at this Republican retreat and she literally said the quiet part out loud saying, you know, these young people are are, are really a threat and we have to do as much as we can to restrict their ability to vote. Um, but I think as we've seen in elections this year, young people are still out there in states like Ohio and Kentucky that are traditionally red and, um, you know, making their voices heard. Yeah. They want to raise the voting age yeah. Uh, to yeah. 21. That's the, right there. I mean, it makes it obvious and clear to me. Can't vote. Yeah, exactly. But I feel like that might be the point in Florida and Texas for Republicans is to chase young people, liberals, marginalized groups out um, so that they can continue their hold uh, in power in those states because this particular Supreme Court is very about states' rights. Uh, and and uh, I, I, I wonder what you think about that, because people are leaving. It's not just a, a, a youth drain, it's a brain drain. Doctors are leaving uh, Texas because they could be prosecuted for performing uh, life-saving abortions. Like it's, it's, I see this in these red states and think, maybe that's the goal. Yeah, I think it is the goal. And, and and I think it's to make these states into homogenous sort of states where everyone thinks the same, looks the same, you know, and, and it's becoming harder for people who do come from those marginalized groups to stay in there. And like you said, it's the direct result of you know, federal policies of, of federal decisions and, and this embracing of those type of decisions on the state and local level. And it's just, you know, if you're thinking about raising a family, would you really want to go to a state like Texas or or Florida where it is hard if you, you know, do need an abortion? Um, or do you want to send your kid to a school in Florida where they can't really read, you know, Toni Morrison or any of the other seminal works of literature? And so, 
it, it, they're becoming harder and harder, but you know, maybe the cruelty and sort of this evilness, maybe they're the point. And, and that's scary because I think if they hold on to power in 2024, they're just going to keep on doing this. And um, you know, that, that's a frightening reality for, I think, a lot of people. Yeah, I agree. I want to talk to you a little bit about some Biden wins, but I have to take a quick break. Um, so stick around. Everybody, we'll be right back after this quick message. Everybody, welcome back. I'm talking to the co-host of the iGen Politics podcast. He co-hosts it with Jill Weinbanks, Gen Z activist extraordinaire, Victor Xi. Victor, uh, who recently I was able to have a drink with because you just recently turned 21. Yes. I want to ask you about some Biden wins because before uh, you came on today, I got to speak with Neera Tandon and we talked about a huge Biden win, a series of Biden wins, lowering prescription drug prices on insulin for Medicare recipients to $35, which created competition, then allowing, you know, for 10 drugs at a time, negotiated drug prices. And now putting together a framework to seize patents from those who would keep drugs out of the reach of the taxpayers who helped fund their development by giving those patents to other companies so that they can make generics. Again, creating competition. Very capitalist idea. But uh, I, I was wondering what your thoughts are on that and then some of your other uh, favorite Biden wins. I mean, it's, it's extraordinary. Remember, this is coming at a time when we don't have the majority in the House, when we barely have a majority in the Senate. And the the other wins that Biden has delivered came at a time when we barely had the majority in the House, when it was, I think, a smaller margin than Kevin McCarthy had. We got so much more done, which just speaks to the ability of Democrats to govern. We had a tie in the Senate. And so it's just extraordinary what this president has been able to accomplish under such thin margins. And, um, you know, I even though I supported Biden in 2020, I remained a little bit um, skeptical about whether Biden could actually pull together a really divided um, Congress. And he's been able to do that time and time again. Um, those things that you mentioned uh, through those executive orders and through you know the Inflation Reduction Act, but also so many other things. Um, I'll speak to some of the things particularly relevant for, for young people. Um, you know, after the Supreme Court struck down his initial student loan forgiveness plan, he's been able to really find different ways to forgive student loans for Americans across the country. Which, by the way, yeah. the Supreme Court took up on an expedited basis before the appeals court heard it, which is exactly what's going on with the immunity yeah, thing. Totally. They wanted to take that up super fast to take that, rip that rug out from under young people and people yeah. who are saddled with student debt. Anyway, and he's been able to work around that. And I think a way that's been pretty remarkable, you know, a lot of other things that are, I think, really showing of who President Biden is, it's that he's not, he's not just delivering for Democrats, he's delivering for all Americans. He's delivering for Republicans. And, you know, the other day I was traveling home from LAX and I saw a sign that um, at LAX that showed, you know, President Biden's Infrastructure Act is making these, you know, infrastructure projects at LAX possible. And, you know, you drive past and you're like, wow, like, like real things are going to happen because of what this administration has accomplished. And I think the closer we get to Election Day, the more Americans are going to see those happen. And it's going to matter, you know, when you're driving across the freeway and you don't have to worry about a pothole or, you know, you're at your airport and the lines are a little bit faster and, and things are a little bit more efficient. And so, I think there's so much that this administration has accomplished. And kind of going back to our first question, he doesn't get enough credit by the media for this. They would rather focus on, you know, his age and they would rather focus on the negative polling rather than the real things that matter to American people. And I think we have to bring back like normalcy. I mean, like he's just a normal, boring president and that's okay, but he's gotten so much done. And But to the media, that's sort of, you know, that's not appealing and they would rather focus on these sensational headlines. 
I think one of my favorite Biden wins is when we were at the White House for the signing of the Inflation Reduction Act. Yes, yes. And we learned that the labor secretary in the White House cut a deal with U.S. Steel to ensure that the wind turbines that were made, that are going to be manufactured under the Inflation Reduction Act to help with the climate part of the of the IRA, are going to be made with 100% U.S. steel in a, in 100% union steel mills. Like, oh, love that. It gets so down into the into the weeds with every single thing that this president does. He wants to make sure that it's done properly, and he wants to make sure that every little piece of it benefits American workers, American families, and the American people in general, and the climate. Like it's a win, 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 win. Like there's right. so many different ways to look at it. <laughs> that I think was one of my favorite Biden wins. And now yeah. the economy. Let's talk about that because yeah. it's. It is rolling. And and uh, everybody for this whole entire three years has been, oh, it's going to be a recession. Oh, it's going to be bad. It's going to, oh, uh, you know, and it, we passed the Inflation Reduction Act, which reduced inflation. And 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 now it's at uh, now it's flat zero and four point nine percent GDP growth. Donald Trump tweeted, oh, Biden will need a magic wand to get to 4%. Well, he found the magic wand, as somebody tweeted, because it's it's that and then adjusted to 5.2%. Wages is, is outpacing inflation. We have consistent job growth for the, you know, more than in the last 50 years, unemployment down to 3.7. It's incredible. And now, now, finally, three years later, consumer confidence is starting yeah. to tick up. You know, there was, um, I was listening to CNBC earlier this morning, and I didn't know that there's an index called the Misery Index. And apparently the Misery Index is at 6.8%, which is the lowest in a few years. So people are happier. People see the economic results. I think there is, um, Jared Bernstein has been really good. He's the chair of the National um, Economic Council. And he wrote a tweet yesterday that basically said, you know, um, the, the way that people feel about the economy and the way that people are judging this administration for those economic accomplishments, the, that gap is getting smaller and smaller. And so they're starting to see this economy for what it is and what President Biden has been been able to do with it. I think one of the other extraordinary things that I've seen over in just the past week is that the Dow Jones broke record three times. Last week, they broke 37,000. At the end of the week, they broke even that first record. And then this week, they got to 37,500, um, which is the, the highest it's ever been. And so on basically every single economic indicator, this economy is really strong. And, um, you know, he deserves credit. This is Bidenomics in action. This is what happens when you, you know, invest from the middle on out, from the bottom up. You know, when you don't give tax breaks to the rich, you really invest in the American people and give them the breathing room that they need to, you know, go into our economy and and you know have a good living. I think that is what this president has done so effectively. And now we're starting to see the results. And what a perfect way to, I think, end this year. And and we're only going to see, I think, the the positive results as we head into twenty twenty four. Yeah. And I don't want to disregard those Americans who are feeling like they're underwater, totally. still living paycheck to paycheck. So many of us do that. And I want to talk a little bit about the lag time of something like the Inflation Reduction Act, the infrastructure bill, and what a, a second Biden term to finish the job right. will look like for these Americans that do still feel the pressure and are still struggling and aren't looking around and thinking the economy the economy is great. It's just not great for them. Talk a little bit about that. What we have to look forward to. Some of the things that Biden is looking for uh, to to put into place in the future, or some of the things he's already put online that are going to 
we'll start seeing the effects in the future, like high speed rail and, and broadband in rural areas and things like that, things that take time. Totally. Yeah. And I, one of my favorite sayings that he's running on in 2024 is, you know, I came into office, I, you know, the job, let's finish the job. And I think, you know, the job is we're just getting started. This is a process. This is something that doesn't just happen overnight. And so I think a lot of those infrastructure projects are going to happen, you know, throughout these next couple of years. Um, we know that he's been very aggressive when it comes to gun violence prevention. And if he wins another term, that's, I know, going to be a big focus of his student loans, um, you know, more infrastructure. Child credit. Uh, child credit. Yes. And so there's a lot that he's running on in the second term. But like he said, let's finish the job now. Let's get this done. You know, I got into office. I knew what to do. And this is going to be a process. It's going to be more than four years. But if you trust me with another, you know, term, this is what would happen. And it's real results. And I think he's also making the case, you know, always pushing for an emphasis on Congress and also state and local races, too. You look at what happened at what happens when Democrats win offices on the state and local level. I'm here in Illinois right now. And basically, Illinois, Michigan, Minnesota, our neighboring states, they've delivered real results because they've had that majority. And so I think part of the push for 2024 is, you know, re-elect President Biden, but also be sure to vote all the way down ballot because then you'll see the results you want to see. And it's much easier to get um, these things that Republicans have, you know, stymied for so long. Yeah. And if you're super left, ultra progressive, you know, I am on a few things. I, I, I'm I, even more left of Medicare for all. I want a direct government health care system yes. in the whole country. Here's the thing, folks, right? And I know that everyone listening knows this. But I want to talk about conversations to have with people that you know about these things. If we vote for Democrats, we can push them left. If we don't, if we sit this one out or vote for Republicans, not only do we lose our seat at the table, the whole damn table disappears, right? Yeah. So, so talk a little bit about what folks can say to their you know, because we're not talking to our listeners right now, but what can they say when they're going home for the holidays or talking to their MAGA family members? What can they say to them about a, the positive future that that, that Biden is, is promising? Yeah, I, I think it starts from, you know, I, I get a lot of people who ask me, you know, well, like, why isn't every Gen Z paying attention right now? And part of the reason is because most people just don't really pay attention to elections this far out, um, but, you know, 11 months, 12 months out before the election. So I think part of the, you know, responsibility and, and, you know, duty that I think all of us who are really tuned in and really plugged in have is, you know, just start listening to people, what they have to say, you know, what are the issues they care most about? And we are equipped with the facts. We are those trusted messengers. And so we really matter in those conversations. So, you know, wonder, you know, what are the issues that are most affecting your lives right now? And then probably on a lot of those issues, you can connect it somehow to what President Biden has done or promises to do in the future. And I think a lot of the messaging has to start from like, what do people care about? What will President Biden and Democrats do to deliver for the things that you care about? And then also contrast that with what Republicans aren't doing. You know, there is a really interesting graphic by Axios that shows all of the sort of legislation that's been passed over the past few Congresses. And you look at the 118th Congress, and there's only been 20 bills passed this, this cycle. And it just shows, you know, this party is not serious about anything that people care about. And so I think it's just having those conversations, listening, um, you know, doing it in a way that that doesn't antagonize people for not paying attention this far out, that doesn't antagonize people for maybe having differing opinions, but just willing, I think, being willing to have those conversations and start listening and, and really emphasizing all this administration has done and, you know, what the contrast is to the Republican Party is at least sort of the best framing techniques I've I've seen. And as you know, I worked for the government for a long time yep. and I probably hired 
three to 400 people mm. when I worked for the government. And in those interviews, we do something called a performance-based interview. Oh. And, and what that means is uh, we ask for real-world practical examples of something that you've done. And so I'm going to do that now. I'm going to ask you for, uh, this is your performance-based interview. I want to ask you about a conversation you've had with somebody who maybe wasn't that into politics or didn't really know about what Biden was doing, wasn't really that interested in voting, and how that conversation turned out. Sure. So I was in line for um, lunch a few months ago, and one of my friends, I bumped into one of my close friends, and she knew that I did a lot with Biden, and I'm very pro-Biden. And she asked, you know, like, what has this administration even done that would benefit, like, my life? And I went, you know, look, I know there's a lot on your mind, and, you know, that there are a lot of issues that are affecting our generation. And when you look at what President Biden has been able to do with um, an even Senate and also with a bare majority in the House, it's pretty remarkable. And then I went down and listed a lot of those things, whether it's gun violence prevention, whether it's, you know, climate change and with Inflation Reduction Act, investing $300 billion um, in that, um, or any of the other things, like nominating the first ever uh, female Black Supreme Court justice onto the bench, or, you know, the way that he's reshaped our judiciary. And by the end of that conversation, she turns to me and she says, wow, like, I haven't seen or heard any of that information. And by the end of the conversation, she was like, you know, I feel much better about this administration. But I think at the end of the day, when I talked to a lot of at least my peers, there is so much a lack of awareness of what this president has done. And the more we can get those accomplishments out there, and it doesn't have to be all of them at once. Maybe it can, maybe it can just be a f specific issue like gun violence. You know, President Biden created a um, Office of Gun Violence Prevention, now chaired by uh, Vice President Harris, and it's getting real things done for a really big issue for young people. I think the more we can emphasize that and just get that information across, because what young people are listening to are things on TikTok and things like Reddit, and there isn't enough of that political conversation happening on those platforms. And so the more we can have those one-on-one -on -one conversations, I think it can really get through in a way that social media might not be able to. Excellent. My friend, thank you for doing the work that you're doing. Thank you for being, uh, you know, not just on the iGen Politics uh, podcast, but out on the street talking to people um, and uh, keeping your finger on the pulse uh, of what's going on, especially with Gen Z. I really appreciate it. And I know that um, everyone listening does too. Tell everyone where they can find you on socials so that they can follow you and, and your work. Well, first of all, thank you for all that you've done, too. I get smarter every day seeing your tweets about the legal system and everything happening with Jack Smith and the in the Supreme Court and all of the Trump investigations. So thank you for keeping us informed and smarter. Um, in terms of social media, I'm still on Twitter or X. <laughs> I don't know how long that'll survive, but I'm at VictorShe2020. I'm also on Threads. Um, I'm on um, basically every platform out there, um, Instagram. And then my podcast with Jill, we drop it every Wednesday, um, right at 5 a.m. Pacific time, 8 a.m. Eastern time. Awesome. Everybody, thanks for listening. I'll be back tomorrow with uh, Olivia Troy uh, and Anna Bauer, the incredible reporter uh, from Lawfare down in Atlanta and, and, well, all over the country, to be honest. Thank you so much for listening, everybody. I'll be back in your ears tomorrow. Until then, please take care of yourselves. Take care of each other. Take care of your, the planet. Take care of your mental health. Take care of your family. Vote blue over Q and bring someone with you. I've been AG and them's the beans. The Daily Beans is written and executive produced by Allison Gill with additional research and reporting by Dana Goldberg. Sound design and editing is by Desiree McFarlane with art and web design by Joel Reeder with Moxie Design Studios. Music for The Daily Beans is written and performed by They Might Be Giants, and the show is a proud member of the MSW Media Network, a collection of creator-owned podcasts dedicated to news, politics, and justice. For more information, please visit mswmedia.com. MSW Media.
Hi, this is John Cryer, and I am hosting a new seven-part true crime podcast called Lawyers, Guns, and Money that'll challenge everything you think you know about U.S. covert operations and presidential misconduct. From Jack Bryan, the director of American PSYOP, comes the incredible true story of John Mattis, a newly sworn in Miami public defender in the 1980s who has found himself completely in over his head. I step off the plane and there is a van with a couple guys with Uzis. And one of them in broken English said, welcome to Bogota, John. Mattis's first felony defendant has been arrested for having a machine gun and tells Mattis a dangerous secret. He was shipping arms into Central America on behalf of the CIA as a first-time lawyer, I want to act like I know what I'm doing. But with the help of a Colombian drug smuggler... How much money the CIA raised by hitting up drug dealers? A lot of money, millions of dollars. An Alabama mercenary... They were prepared to die to the last man. I saw this in them. I saw the fire in their eyes. And they made me their war chief. And a newly elected senator, John Kerry. We are looking at allegations of drug running, gun smuggling, conspiracy to commit murder and murder itself. He'll fight to free his client. The judge said, show me in a courtroom how we were at war. Expose an illegal war being run by the White House. I mean, I wanted him involved, but I didn't want to be on record as doing it. And somehow stay alive in the process. I just escaped a kidnapping by the CIA in Costa Rica. This is Lawyers, Guns, and Money. So you have a man in an Armani suit standing on the bow of a boat with a rocket launcher and says, if I lose sight of you, I will launch. You will be vaporized. Available everywhere starting October 29th. Or get it ad-free and early starting October 22nd at lawyersgunsandmoney.supercast.com. There you'll find bonus episodes along with exclusive content. Subscribe now.